Well, let's begin with a prayer this morning. Father, we believe that your resurrection changes everything. We believe that what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied, that the dry bones in the valley will be put together, sinews and flesh, and that even more than that, that your spirit will be breathed into those. You will make us anew. That in the resurrection, you give us life. Life abundant. Father, this morning, may your word be heard. May your word be spoken. Amen. Well, uh, Martin outlined this in his message last week as he kicked off the series. Um, I thought it would be helpful just to go over it again. Make sure that we're kind of all on the same page with what we're trying to do in this series. So there are two questions when we approach the idea of resurrection, right? First, there's the question of whether it did, in fact, happen. Was there a resurrection? And then the second question is is kind of a question more about implications or uh, what difference does it make? It's the the meaning-making question, right? If it did, in fact, happen, what difference does it make? Well, we've titled the series, as I said, This Changes Everything. So maybe that gives you a little bit of a hint into which aspect of these questions we're trying to focus on. We're trying to explore scripturally the implications of the resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean that we think the first question is is somehow unimportant or unworthy of study and discussion, but it just simply means that what we're going to focus on in these four weeks is this question of what difference does it make then? And we're building on the idea, the understanding that there is, in fact, an empty tomb. So I'll use the words of one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, to sum up this connection between the two questions and kind of why we're focusing on what we're focusing on. He says, Christians do not believe in the empty tomb. A little bit provocative, right? Christians do not believe in the empty tomb, but in the living Christ. That's what we believe in. That's why this is what our focus is in this series. Christians do not believe in an empty tomb, but in the living Christ. But that does not mean that we can believe in the living Christ without believing in an empty tomb. So as much as we're going to be focusing on the second question in the series, uh, it cannot adequately be addressed without affirming that first one, that there is indeed an empty tomb. So this morning we're going to look at one aspect of of the reality that Christ is not in the tomb, that he has been raised, that he has been resurrected. And that changes everything. Last week, you'll remember, Martin explored the connection between the resurrection and our own hearts, right? That the risen and the exalted Christ changes us personally. I love that that story that he used about the men on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, and 
and Jesus comes along and travels with them, but they don't know it's Jesus, right? When do they know it's Jesus? He breaks bread with them when they get there, and their eyes are opened. I love that line. Did our hearts not burn within us when he walked with us and talked with us and opened the Scriptures to us? Martin reminded us last week that the resurrection is the power to renew our hearts. Resuscitation, he said, is simply rewarming it, right? And, and reincarnation tries to reinvent it. But the promise of the resurrection is the power to create within us a new heart, to renew, recreate, revive. To reinvigorate. So this week I want to begin with a very simple premise. That is, the confession that God raised Jesus from the dead is a public truth. It's not a mere private opinion. The confession that God raised Jesus from the dead is a public truth, not a mere private opinion. Now, the point here is not to try to negate last week's message. You know, about our hearts and kind of that private, more interior space. But to bring the question of meaning of the resurrection into a broader realm. In other words, if if this truly does change everything, then it doesn't simply change what's inside me privately, my heart, my hope. But it changes our very destiny in a public way. And so we're examining how the resurrection changes salvation this morning. Kind of a heady topic. We're going to do that from three different angles. So the first angle is that the resurrection changes salvation in the shadow of the cross. The second is that the resurrection changes salvation by bringing victory over the tomb. And the third is that the resurrection changes salvation now. Right now. If you're one of the few that likes to take sermon notes and you want three kind of quick and easy, tidy categories that you can, uh, you can scribble down, here they are. The first is that The resurrection changes salvation by justification. The second is by vindication. And the third is by inauguration. Right? Those are kind of a little bit obscure terms, so we're going to unpack them a little bit from these three different angles. So the first angle, the resurrection changes salvation in the shadow of the cross, or what we're calling here justification. I think we we ought to start out by acknowledging that our message this morning Uh, might sound a little strange to your ear. In fact, I I think probably the longer you've been a Christian, the longer you've been in church, the more sermons you've heard, the more teaching you've heard, probably the more strange this one might sound to your ears. What I mean by that is uh, typically we explore salvation as a scriptural topic and we go to scriptures that focus on the death, right? Right? or the cross, or even maybe the blood of Jesus. When we talk salvation and we talk New Testament, 
Those are the go-to places. Of course, there's reason for that. There's plenty of evidence. I'll, I'll give you a few here. Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? The death. Or how about Colossians 2.14? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Right? The cross. Or again, Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's, there's reason for this. Right? There's plenty of other evidence we could look to in the New Testament. But, but this morning, I want to look at kind of the flip side of this. The truth is, usually when we go to speak about salvation, we look to the cross or the death or the blood of Jesus. And again, that's true. And that's biblical. And I want to affirm that I have no intention of trying to completely overthrow that this morning. I don't want you to toss that out the window. But when we attempt to seek the biblical connection between the resurrection and salvation, our first thought might be, hmm, what connection? Doesn't salvation have to do with the death? Wasn't it His blood that was shed for us? You see, we don't automatically talk about the resurrection in connection with salvation. I mean, when your friend or neighbor comes up to you and asks about salvation, don't you automatically talk about how Christ's death is an expiation of sin and His oblation on the cross and His propitiation for our behalf? Right? Isn't that, isn't that all? How we, we all talk about the cross that way, right? I have a doctorate in this stuff and I still had to go and look up what the difference was between expiation and propitiation. Don't ask me after service because I already forget. <laughs> it has something to do with forgiveness of sins. Regardless, the, the point remains. When we talk about salvation, our go-to place in Scripture is not the resurrection. It's the cross. Maybe that isn't as biblical as we think it is. What if I told you that our preaching may actually have strayed pretty far from the preaching of the apostles? If we look in the book of Acts, that book of the account of the rise of the church after the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, this is our kind of primary source material for what was going on in that early church, and it's littered with sermons. Really, the book is kind of a string of sermons, and they go to the next place, and then there's another sermon by Peter or Paul, right? If we look at those sermons, did you know that every single one of the sermons in Acts either alludes to or explicitly mentions the resurrection? Did you also know that that's not something that can be said? about the cross or the death of Jesus? I think if you were forced to summarize the preaching in the book of Acts, if you had to kind of sum up 
what are all these sermons? If, if you had to boil it down, reduce it to the most basic message, what are they preaching? What are the apostles preaching in the early church? It would be this. Jesus rose from the grave. He is alive. And that changes everything. So preaching the resurrection in the shadow of the cross is sometimes a little bit of a tricky thing. Sometimes it, it becomes overshadowed by the cross. You know that before the 4th century, so before Christianity becomes married with the Roman Empire, the cross is actually a very minor symbol in the Christian movement, the subversive movement. In fact, in some areas in, in the Mediterranean basin, it's not used at all. If, if you were to show a Christian in the second century in North Africa, and there was lots of Christians in North Africa, what is this? They wouldn't make any connection with their faith. But everywhere, everywhere in the early church, the resurrection was proclaimed. Now, I want to be careful here. That the point is not to try to swing the pendulum, like I said, back the other way, to you know somehow proclaim a resurrection without the cross, whatever, whatever that might mean. The point is that we do a disservice to the gospel when we try to divorce these things. As if the cross and the empty tomb somehow did different things or worked differently or worked independently of each other. When we talk about salvation, we must always keep the cross and the resurrection together. One thing. Remember back to our Easter service together. We talked about the resurrected Jesus. The one with the scars still in his hands and his feet and his side. You see, the resurrected Jesus is the crucified Jesus. We can't talk about one without the other. And that means that the living Jesus, the, the resurrected one, affects our salvation just as much as the cross of Calvary. In fact, I might go so far as to say that the cross of Christ is entirely ineffective without the resurrection. It's a bold statement. If you don't believe me, if somehow you think that logic doesn't quite fit, Let's have a closer look to see what the Bible says. Let's start with a, a passage that Martin introduced last week, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins, it says. Let me read it again. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. What? I thought the cross took care of that. Okay, well, maybe that's just kind of one obscure scripture, right? Maybe not. How about Acts 13? But the one whom God raised from the dead, the resurrected Jesus, did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, and he's pointing back to the resurrection here, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
that is through the living one. Earlier in Acts, Peter's uh, confronted by the Jewish leaders, and he said, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus up, resurrection, whom you had killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him to the right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The raised Jesus gives forgiveness of sins. You see, friends, the Bible actually speaks of the forgiveness of sins not only coming through the blood, but via the resurrection too. And what's probably one of the earliest Christian hymns that they would have sung or chanted in worship together, that Paul uses, he takes it and he uses in his letter to the Romans. He writes, Jesus our Lord, whom, you, whom was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. I wrestled with that scripture this week. That is a fascinating way to say it was raised for our justification. It's not one or the other. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus together that bring forgiveness and justification. If Christ is raised for our justification, then then we may be washed by the blood, but the work of the cross is not complete until the tomb is empty and the living Christ is vindicated. So that brings us to the second angle. From the shadow of the cross to the victory over the tomb, from justification to vindication. Often when we talk about how the work that was accomplished on the cross was done in our place, right? For our benefit. This has sometimes been called by Christians over the years the glorious exchange. I love that language, that idea, that picture of this glorious exchange. That's when it was my turn to be accountable for my universal human tendency to mess things up. A perfect substitute was offered on my behalf. And as a result, I didn't receive what I was due. But notice now, here with the resurrection, it's actually flipped, right? 1 Timothy tells us That in His resurrection, Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. It's the language it uses. Where the only perfect one was vindicated in His own right, now I too am invited to be vindicated along with Him. Follow me closely as I, I kind of restate that. When it was my turn to be held accountable, he went to the cross, so I avoided the wages of sin, death. And when it was his turn to be exalted, to be vindicated or justified or exonerated and and placed in his proper position, he invited me to ride along. You see that glorious exchange? It's not simply an exchange of my guilt. For all you football fans out there, it's a double reverse, right? 
It's that He became sin who knew no sin. But it's also that I might become the righteousness of God through the resurrection. Okay, let me state it one more, one more way. If um, my bank account was so overdrawn that I, I could work the rest of my life and not pay it, it I could win the lottery, I, I could be Jeff Bezos and still not pay it off. But Jesus going to the cross settled that balance. But here's the thing, friends. My balance doesn't stay at zero. Because in the resurrection, I am gifted a limitless credit. Scrooge McDuck, diving in the money bin, right? The cross can deal with our guilt. As we've seen, that's not the whole story either, is it? The resurrection gives us victory. We could put it this way, Jesus went to the cross for our life and He was resurrected for our new life. In the process of the resurrection, vindicating Jesus, we are vindicated by association. My mom would always hound my brothers and I that even if we weren't doing anything wrong, if we were hanging out with the wrong crowd, we could be guilty by association, right? I think probably one or two of you have heard that too. But here, here in the resurrection, it's the opposite. We are vindicated by association with the resurrected one. Listen to Paul writing to the Roman church again in chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death, by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Or again, a little later in chapter 8. Christ Jesus who died More than that, he says, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Let me summarize this idea of vindication. We'll move on to the final section. The idea that the resurrection is is much more. That it's more than that. It's the language of victory. It's the language of vindication. It's like Paul is saying, if if you thought dying and and cleansing you from sin was the final act, the grand finale, you're sorely mistaken. Because you missed the showstopper. The fact that he defeated death, the fact that he is alive, the fact that he offers his life in the resurrection, that's the finale. Church Father Athanasius puts it this way. The resurrected body of Christ is a trophy over death. I love that. Good sports image. Salvation now in the resurrection. I think in some ways we're ending probably where we ought to have started. Friends, talk of salvation 
can quickly turn to the benefits of Christ. What I mean by that is that what we gain from Christ's life and His death and His resurrection. We miss maybe sometimes the more obvious biblical reality. And that is, to receive the benefits of Christ, you need to receive Christ first. But to gain His benefits, you need to be united with Him. To be on the receiving end of the grace-filled benefits of Christ, to be justified, sanctified, atoned for, propitiated, expiated, whatever you want to call it. All the rest. We need to be, before all else, one with Jesus Christ. Again, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 6, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, that is, death to sin, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now if we died with Christ in the waters of baptism, we believe that we will also live with Him as we are raised to new life. You see, friends, union with Christ is the very definition of salvation. It's what it means to be saved. It's the root of the connection between resurrection and salvation. That is, union with Christ. The resurrection is needed because how can we be united with one who rots in a grave? Here's why I think maybe we ought to have started here this morning. When we think about salvation, we sometimes might think about going to heaven. Right? When I die, at the end of time, I'll go to heaven. But the New Testament paints a very different picture of salvation. It tells us that salvation is brought with the very person of Jesus. That it's his in His resurrection that salvation is inaugurated. That's why union with Christ is the root of salvation. Now, before we receive the benefits, we must receive Him and His life. That's why the resurrection is more than a nice, tidy ending that wraps up the cross. Well, the resurrection, friends, is the arrow that pierces the armor. It's the first inbreaking of salvation into our world. It's the affirmation that in the resurrection, salvation is now, and it's for eternity. Remember that story of Lazarus <clears throat> being resuscitated to life by Jesus that Martin talked about last week. You remember Jesus was late in coming to Bethany and Lazarus had already passed and he was in the tomb. And Martha, Lazarus' sister, runs out to meet Jesus, right? What does she say? She says, Lord, if, if you had just been here, if you had been here, he, he wouldn't have died. 
Jesus says, he will rise. He will live again. And Martha says, oh, yeah, I, I know, Lord. I know. Uh, on the last day, he will be in the resurrection. Right? On the last day, he will be in the resurrection. And she's simply repeating what most of the Jews of the day thought. That the resurrection would happen at the last day. Remember what Jesus' response to her is? No, Martha. No. You haven't got it yet. I am the resurrection and the life. That's what makes Jesus' response to Martha so powerful. You see, the resurrection is not some sort of benefit that God will dispense at the end of days. No. It's not about the last day. No, the resurrection is the very reality of being united with Christ now. Because He is the resurrection and the life. What does this mean for us today? What does it mean that with the resurrection of Jesus, salvation has come? Not as some sort of abstract thing, quantity, to be obtained. But it's come in the person of Jesus. Paul wants us to proclaim, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. What does it mean for you and I today and how we live our lives? Well, I'm not trying to pass the buck entirely, but that is the question that we'll explore next week. What does it mean for the resurrection to change our mission, our witness, both personally and as a church? The fact that we find salvation in the resurrection of Jesus not only changes our own destiny by vindicating us in Christ, by justifying us in His justification, but it changes us now, in the present. Because the the risen One is the resurrection and the life. Friends, today I want to ask you whether you've taken that step to be united with Christ. Are you in union with the one who says he is the resurrection and the life? With the one who brings salvation now, piercing the armor, inbreaking in our world, the world that is passing away in place of his new world? As we close this morning, we get an opportunity to come together around the Lord's table. A simple meal of communion. And we take time to remember Christ's death and His sacrifice for us. And it's represented in these emblems, this piece of bread, this cup that we take, His body and blood. But this morning, I don't want you to do that at the expense of of neglecting the reality that the meal is not only comprised of symbols representing the body and blood of Jesus, but it is, in fact, 
the Lord's table. He's the host of this meal. You see, he's the one who invites. He's the one who offers himself. He is the one who is alive, who gives us these gifts. It is the table of the resurrection and the life. Would you bow with me? Father, for these gifts we are not worthy. We humbly receive them knowing that it is a costly gift. That it cost you your life. That you went to the cross for us. But much more, much more you have been raised to new life. You have been resurrected. You are the bringer of salvation. And so as we partake this morning together, Help us to realize that your spirit is at work in this bread and this cup, renewing within us, recreating our hearts, reminding us that salvation is now. is to be fulfilled, we don't find them rushing to the tomb expecting to find it empty. Instead, we see them going to the tomb expecting to find it the same way they left it on Friday night. With the dead body of Jesus needing more ointment to prevent it from decaying, still occupying the tomb concealed behind a giant stone. Now, there's nothing wrong with what these women were doing because what they did was they were following the customary protocol of their culture for honoring the dead. From an observer's point of view, they were doing the right thing. They were actually doing a beautiful thing. But do you see where they're missing it? It wasn't faith that brought them to the tomb that morning. It was love. Any faith that had grown in them during their time with Jesus had been overwhelmed and extinguished two days before by the horrific events on Calvary. And now all that was motivating them forward was love. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Because it raises the possibility that it's plausible for followers of Christ 
to have a deep and affectionate love for Jesus, yet absolutely no faith in him. Luke chapter 8, verse 3, tells us that this same group of women, while back in Judea, maybe a year or so earlier, I'm not sure of the timeline, they were supporting the work of Jesus with their own means, meaning they loved him and that they believed the world needed to hear what he had to say enough to give their money to keep it going. And at one time, they had put their faith in him. One of these women, Mary Magdalene, had been present when Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus had said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? To which Mary replied, Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. But that was then, and this is now, the trauma they had gone through when they witnessed Jesus' crucifixion had robbed them of their faith. They had it. Maybe Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, somewhere. But they didn't have it Sunday morning. All that was keeping them going was love. Now, the second group I want us to consider is actually only two people. And these are the two disciples that Jesus found on the road to Emmaus. Now, these two disciples, these two fellows, were, were with the 11 disciples when the women came running from the tomb kind of gone forward in the story a bit here, but the women, after finding out that Jesus was resurrected, they ran to the disciples and said, hey, he's risen. And these two fellows, these two disciples, were with the eleven when that happened. Um, But like the others, they thought that these women were just talking a bunch of nonsense. That's impossible. But unlike Peter and the other disciples that ran to the tomb to find out for themselves. These two fellows didn't bother doing that. They just decided, ah, we're out of here. We're going back home to Emmaus. They turned their backs and they walked away. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was dead. Some joker had run off with his body and that was the end of it. So here they are, without hope, and without knowledge of the resurrection, heading home to Emmaus. Now, interestingly, the resurrected Jesus chases them down. And he asks them what they're talking about, but they don't recognize him. With their faces downcast, all they can see is their their dreams, their broken dreams, laying in the gutter. So Jesus questions them, and in their annoyance, they begin to tell Jesus about Jesus, which, is, which would be funny if it weren't so tragic. Here they are, these two fellows with no hope, standing within 
three feet of hope, and they don't even know it. They are this close, but they're missing it. Because their hope had died on Friday night with Jesus. And as of this moment, any thoughts of his resurrection were far from their minds. Sure, they they knew all about Jesus' life. They knew about his death, but they did not know about his resurrection. They were missing that piece. But they should have known, because like the women, they had, they had been with Jesus when he, was, when he said, talking about his own body, he said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And on many other occasions, they would have heard things like that being said, that Jesus must be killed, and then on the third day, raised to life. Yet here they are on the third day, the very day that Jesus told them he would be resurrected, throwing in the towel and heading home. Now you'd think they would at least hang around for another day to find out, wouldn't you? Get a, get a room for the night or surf on somebody's couch you know, for another 24 hours to see what happened. But you and I know that life can hit us hard, can't it? And when it does, hope can be knocked right out of us. And when that happens, it brings a veil of hopelessness over our eyes, preventing us from seeing anything else. Hopelessness can make us quit and want to go home, even when we are this close to having hope again. Do either of these two groups, the women going to the tomb or the, these fellows on the road, do they, either of these resonate with you this morning? Perhaps there was a time years ago when you had learned about Christ and you had been drawn to him, and perhaps like Mary Magdalene, You had made a profession of faith, maybe even being baptized. But something happened in your life. Maybe something terrible happened to a loved one, or somebody did something really bad to you, or or maybe it wasn't um, a big thing. Maybe it was just little things that simply that set you on this slow fade away from your initial excitement about Jesus. And whatever it was, whatever happened, it was enough to extinguish the fire of your faith. And now all that's left is love. Or perhaps like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you've given up hope. Or you feel that hope has given up on you. And you feel like quitting even though you know you shouldn't. And so you carry on because you still believe it's a good and right thing to do, but it ain't like it used to be because the motor in the believer that was designed to run on faith, hope, and love is now only running on love. A 
pitiful state to be in, the Apostle Paul would say. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story, is it? That's not the end of the story for these women going to the tomb and these fellows on the road to Emmaus. The moment they see the resurrected Jesus, something remarkable happens. Faith and hope are resurrected once more in their hearts, and they are made new again. Kainos new. New nature, new quality. After hearing from the angels that Christ is risen, the women turned from the tomb and ran to tell the disciples what had happened. But before they'd gone very far, the resurrected Jesus meets them. And they cling to him. Yes, out of love, but they also begin to worship him, motivated by their renewed faith. And as the two fellows from Emmaus sat across the table with the, uh, from the stranger that they'd met on the road, watching him break bread for them, their eyes were opened. Maybe when he handed them the bread and they saw the nail marks in his hand. Now, we don't know, but whatever happened, they were suddenly aware that they were breaking bread with the risen Christ. Turning to each other, they said, were not our hearts burning within us this whole time? And that, a new Kainos heart burning for Jesus, is what the Apostle Paul wanted when he said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. That's what I want, and I hope that's what you want too. Let's pray. Father, we know as believers that the resurrection happened. The Bible tells us so. Angels were present, showing it was a divine event. But Lord, if we're honest, which I am this morning, I struggle to make that real part of life. I understand many things about the Christian faith, but that one is a bit of a mystery, and, and I struggle to, to assimilate it into my life in a way that you intended it to, the way that the early church did, the way that the Apostle Paul did, Lord. So we ask for help this morning, Lord, that during the four weeks of this series, Lord, that, that the light will come on, that we will not only understand intellectually, the resurrection, Lord, but we will get it in our hearts, we will get it in our bodies, we will get it in our lives, and everything we do will be made new because of the resurrection living in us. And so, Lord, this morning, we, we give ourselves to you anew, give ourselves to you afresh, Lord, knowing that if we are to be your witnesses in this world, then, Lord, we, we need your power to do that. We can't do that on our own. We need your Holy Spirit in us, working in us, enabling us, and working out of us 
into this world, uh, causing us to do things that, that resurrected people do, Lord. And so we, we ask for that this morning in Jesus' name.